Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. What's up, 10%ers? Um, On the show this week, the woman who first demonstrated to me uh, that you can be a hard-charging, high-level corporate samurai and still incorporate mindfulness into your life in a meaningful way. She was a, is a pioneer in bringing meditation into corporate America. And uh, you first met her, if you read 10% Happier in, in that book. Her name is Janice Martirano. More from Janice, much more from Janice coming up. But first, some business and then some voicemails and then Janice. So business, two things. First of all, thank you, everybody, for your comments, questions, et cetera, on Twitter about the pivot in the editorial direction of the show that I announced last week. Um, essentially, my announcement was we're still going to do a ton of meditation, primarily meditation, but we're also going to talk to folks who uh, may not meditate or have anything to say about that in particular, but they know a lot about human performance and uh, human potential and, uh, as I like to say, getting your S word together on every level possible. Um, and and that's where I think we're heading with this show, which is that it's, you know, kind of uh, chicken soup for the skeptic or uh, uh, self-help for wise asses. Uh, s- some people were very supportive of this idea, this kind of pivot, this gentle pivot. Some people, though, um, on Twitter were, were expressing um, some apprehension about it. I, I respect that, and I appreciate you saying this. And look, uh, let me just say a few things about this. One is, um, it is an experiment. My team and I may decide that, that we don't want to do this pivot after all, and you please continue to tell us what you think. Um, uh, second, I, I think it's just important to know that uh, while um, this is still obviously going to be uh, a podcast primarily about um, meditation. If you're serious about meditation, the practice doesn't exist in a vacuum. What you eat, how much you sleep, what your work life is like, what your parenting and family life uh, is like, these all uh, are inextricably intertwined with your meditation practice. Because we don't meditate just to become good meditators. We become we meditate to be better at, at life. So... That's the spirit in which we are in attempting this pivot. But please continue to uh, tweet me and tell me that you think this is dumb or smart or whatever. Uh, second piece of business is that I do have a public event coming up uh, to which you are all cordially invited. It's with a guy named Sam Harris. We're not related, but uh, he is kind of a brother from another mother. I just I, I look up to him a lot. Controversial guy, um, but incredibly smart and very serious for a long time about meditation, also the host of a very popular um, podcast called Waking Up. So Sam Harris and I are doing an event together in Los Angeles on Wednesday, May 2nd, 8 o'clock at the Skirball. That's S-K-I-R-B-A-L-L, Skirball Cultural Center. You can get tickets on skirball.org. All right, let's do some voicemails. Here we go, number one. Hey, Dan. Slater calling. Love your work. Appreciate it. It's helped me out a lot. My question is uh, regarding trying to stay 10% happier while you shop in Costco with everybody blocking the lanes and 
blocking in the other lanes. If you ever shop Costco, you know what I mean. So if you could tell us all how to remain calm, meditate through the lovely experience of shopping at Costco, I think it could be fun. Thanks. So I hear you. I mean, every every life, maybe there's some exceptions to this, but I'm, I'm unaware of them. Every life has experiences that are really frustrating and that we dread, but we have to do anyway. Uh, there are parts of the traveling experience, traveling on planes, going through airports that I detest. Uh, so the first thing I'd say is you're not alone. The second thing I'd say is it doesn't have to not suck. I don't think we're expecting to snap our fingers and make everything that's annoying about life not be annoying. Um, but I think you can use these as opportunities to practice in in so much that it's a training. So what are we training in meditation? We're training to um, be awake instead of asleep and to be awake in a way that allows us to see what's happening in our head as we go through whatever we're going through. Uh, clearly enough that whatever random emotion has just ambushed us or random thought has just popped through our mind, it doesn't own us. We don't necessarily act on whatever urges or impulses we may have. Uh, I would just do what's called a noting practice. So uh, we've probably talked about this before on the podcast, and I know we talk about it a lot on the 10% Happier app, but the noting practice is not complicated. It's just that whatever you're doing in your head, you make a soft mental note of it. And I'm and so you're. Uh, I'm not talking about getting super complicated here. You don't have to th- note. Oh, thinking about calculus, wondering about um, uh, uh, what life was like on the savanna during the early days of evolution. No, actually, just make much simpler. So as you're walking, you can just make a note of movement. Uh, if you catch yourself thinking, thinking, you catch yourself feeling really angry because somebody's just bought all the kitty litter and you need some. Uh, just note the feeling of anger and examine where is that showing up in my body? Uh, is it my chest buzzing and my ear turning? My ears are turning red. What kind of thoughts am I having? Simple notes that and and, and some people when they hear this they think oh well isn't that just thinking? Uh, and aren't you not supposed to think in meditation? Two answers to that: thinking is inevitable in meditation because you can't stop the mind from producing thoughts. That's what it does. Uh, the point is just to get not get carried away by the thoughts. But more importantly. Mental noting is the skillful use of thought to direct you to your direct experience. So just as you're going through this uh, process, you, you're standing online at the checkout. It's going forever. You notice somebody maybe not going as uh, speedily as you would like. Just make a little mental note of anger, seeing, hearing. And in this way, I think actually you can reduce the suffering of the experience immeasurably. On my last meditation retreat, it really occurred to me that if you are suffering, if anything is bothering you, there is something you are not being sufficiently mindful of. There's not something you're not being mindful of at all. And when you're mindful of something, even something unpleasant, actually in the little nanoseconds when you're mindful of it, it's not bothering you. You're just non-judgmentally aware of it. So try that. Again, the noting practice, just making soft, little mental notes as you go through this process. And then every time you get distracted, start again and just make a little mental note of what it is that has distracted you. I hope what I just said made some semblance of logical sense. Um, I should have issued the caveat that I normally do before the I take the calls, which is I'm not a meditation teacher. 
I'm not a mental health expert. I'm just a guy who you know tries to meditate a reasonable amount and writes about it. And um, so you should take everything I say with a grain of salt. Anyway, great question. I hope it works. Call me back and let me know. Here's question number two. Hey, Dan. Good morning. Walt from uh, up in Rhode Island. Question for you is um, staying present. Obviously, you know, the real main goal here, that's kind of the holy grail, if you will. Uh, however, you know, as a, as a guy who owns his own business and also as a parent of a special needs child, uh, there is a fair amount of time that I need to spend thinking about, you know, where I want the company to go, how you get there, what are going to be the steps, um, as well as, you know, <laughs> coming up with scenarios for when the the inevitable emergencies pop up uh, with my son. Um, and so, you know, those things are kind of best planned out in advance. Um, so how do you sort of balance uh, what just being there with, okay, so these things are going to be constantly thrown at you, um, and, you know, and how do you cre- create a business plan for the future uh, while doing that mindfully in the present? Thank you, Walt. Really appreciate it. So you talked about two things, one being a business owner and two being the the parent of a special needs child. I know a little bit about the former, given that I, in the last couple of years, have been dabbling as in the world of business as uh, the co-founder of the 10% Happier Company, um, and I have some sense of how it's like a running existential crisis (laughs) all the time being in business, so I feel you on that. I, too, am a parent, but not of a special needs child, so it's hard for me to imagine the amount of stress that that would entail, and um, it it has to be significant. So I would say, um, you know, again, based on my limited meditation experience um, and and some experience in in the worlds that you're describing, that uh, the planning that you describe as being necessary sounds absolutely necessary. And from a business standpoint, you need to think out worst-case scenarios. You need to figure out how you're going to develop the business, how you're going to grow it, uh, who should be hired, who should be let go. There's a lot of thinking and planning that needs to be done. And then, again, from the parenting standpoint, you talked about sort of thinking through how we're going to handle any number of tricky scenarios that could arise vis-a-vis our child. All of that, to my ears, sounds absolutely, utterly reasonable, non-negotiable. You have to do that stuff. For me, it reminds me of a conversation that I had with my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, that I wrote about in 10% Happier, where I was on a meditation retreat and we were nearing the end of the retreat. And uh, he said to the group, um, this was in the, it was a silent meditation retreat, um, but the teachers were allowed to talk. And this was actually during the very short period every day where you were allowed to ask questions of the teacher. And so he said something about like, Hey, we're at, we're getting toward the end of the retreat. You're going to, you're going to start thinking about what you're going to be doing when the retreat is over. Try to resist that. And I raised my hand and said, well, wait a minute, you know, if, if I miss my flight, that has real world consequences. It's not, this isn't a, 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 just a, um, a thought that's disconnected from reality. And he said, something brilliant that truly, and this is an overused phrase, but but in this case, apt, changed my life. He said, yes, it's true. If you miss your flight, that's a problem. But on the 17th time that you find yourself running through all the horrible things that may or may not happen to you as a consequence of a missed flight, maybe ask yourself a one simple question. Is this useful? 
And I remember kind of rocking back in my chair and thinking, oh, yeah, my whole life has been organized around the principle of protective fretting, you know, just worrying and gaming out all the potential uh, moves to be made in the event of whatever um, horror movie might arise in uh, in my life. Um, by the way, most of those things never happen, as Mark Twain is reputed to have said. Uh, the worst things that ever happened to me never happened. Um, but many of us operate on this idea that we need the only way we're going to survive is to constantly worry. So my argument to you, based on that advice that Joseph gave to me eight or nine years ago that I've road tested every day of my life, is, yes, of course, you need to be thinking about business issues and parenting issues. But at some point, you reach the point of diminishing returns. And at that moment, that's the time to ask yourself, is this useful? Uh, Somebody sent me on Twitter the other day uh, that they've actually made that the home screen on their phone. Or they they set a reminder on their phone that pops up every hour or so that just asks them, is this useful? It's an incredibly sorry to be repetitive, useful little mantra to to employ. Um, so then I guess the other part of your question is how can, can you stay mindful while doing this planning and worrying? Yeah, absolutely. You just use the tools we're, that, we're, that we're learning in meditation, which is, you know, can you uh, occasionally pull yourself out of your head and back into your body just for nanoseconds at a time to um, – you know, make you less crazy, less, less sort of lost in the swirl of thinking that goes on when we're planning. But of course, you're going to get carried away. And that's just part of the deal. Don't expect per- perfection here. But just rely on the basics of the practice, which will remind you to come back to right now, what's happening in your body, in your mind and in a given moment. And also throw in this mantra, get in the habit of using that. Because then you'll notice that actually... We cross the line often between what I call constructive anguish, you know, useful worrying, and and the other side of that line, which is, which is useless rumination. So, thank you, Walt. Good luck. I I hope that I hope that helps. Um, if you want to call and have me lamely answer your questions, um, here's the phone number: six four six eight eight three eight three two six six four six eight eight three eight three Two six. All right. Our guest this week, she's a star, Janice Martirano. If you read 10% Happier, you met her because I met her um, many years ago, I think in 2010 or something like that. I had heard about her work. She was a um, uh, vice president at General Mills, and she was kind of virally spreading meditation through General Mills, which, as I often joke, is like the most American company you can think of. They make Hamburger Helper, and they're based in Minnetonka, Minnesota. And I flew out there, and she had um, very successfully injected meditation into the executive level of this company, so much so that they actually have meditation rooms in every building in their corporate campus in Minnetonka. And uh, she really helped me see that you can be in, you know, in, in, uh, let's just say, counterintuitive 
environment for meditation, maybe even a hostile environment for meditation, not only uh, surviving, but also thriving and more than just thriving, also helping other people thrive. So she's since left General Mills. She now runs something called the Institute for Mindful Leadership, which is a nonprofit, and they teach people um, in leadership positions, both in the corporate world and outside of the corporate world, um, how to use meditation to make themselves better at, at what they do and, and, and better at their actual lives as well. Uh, before we start, I just want to say that if you're interested in her work, she doesn't talk about this during the podcast, but uh, I, I will talk about it now. Uh, starting on May 1st, she's got this online program. Um, it's called Finding the Space to Lead, and you can learn more about it at her website, which is uh, mindfulleaders.org. Okay, here we go. Janice Martirano. Anybody who read 10% Happier, and if you didn't know, what's the matter with you, um, <laughs> will know, will have seen at least your a little bit of your backstory, but... Just as a refresher, let's do the long version here because uh, I think it's it's really interesting. I've heard it before, but it's really interesting. How did you come to meditation given your kind of unique circumstances in, in Minnesota at the time? Sure. Okay. So we go all the way back to the turn of the century, the year 2000. At that time, I was what I call the 21st century juggler, which is what probably most of us in the work world would consider ourselves and that's you have lots of balls in the air. And for me, uh, the main goal every day was to try and keep them from falling. And so the balls in the air were I was at that time a new vice president. I was married, uh, two school-age kids, the daughter of aging parents, and the president of a nonprofit board in the Twin Cities. So lots of balls in the air. And, and actually, I felt very happy. I was pretty much doing what I had always hoped I would be able to do. I had interesting work. I enjoyed what I did. My kids were great. My husband's great. I loved my parents. They're real important to me. And I was able to give back in the community. So I kind of felt like, oh, this is great. And then the phone rang one spring morning. And it was our CEO. And he said, uh, General Mills is going to buy Pillsbury. So an acquisition of equal size organizations. My original training on Wall Street was as a deal lawyer. So doing deals was not new to me. But as it would turn out and surprising to everyone, this would turn into the deal from hell. And rather than take five or six months for a whole host of reasons, uh, it would drag out to a full 18 months. Well, about six months into this, I remember coming from my car to the office one early one morning, and I ran into someone from an officer from uh, Pillsbury. And he asked me how the latest round of interviews at the FTC went. And I explained to him, well, you at know. Federal Trade Commission. So, Federal so that was what yeah. was getting, it was getting hung up on the Fed side? Yeah, okay. it was getting hung up at the FTC and actually one person at the FTC. Um And Dan, I should tell you that that whole deal, now that I'm not in that line of work right now, I can say it was all about 99-cent cake mix, if you can believe. But that's a whole nother topic. (laughs) Anyway, so I came back and said, you know, I thought we answered all our questions. We brought them the experts they wanted. It all went great. The interviews seemed to go well. And on the way out of the door, they handed us another pile of questions to respond respond to. And he sort of nodded. And he, yeah, okay, I get it. But as he was walking away, he said, you know, if you can't get this deal through, 10,000 Pillsbury employees are going to lose their job. 
So it's not like I needed more stress at that point or more pressure to get this done because the team and I were already working seven days a week to, to satisfy a million questions and get everything that they wanted done. And we literally, I remember days where I would work out twice a day to have energy at night for the strategy sessions or for filling out more questions. So I was really burning the candle at both ends. And around that same time, my mother, who had been ill, passed away. This rocked my very foundation. I was very close to her. No time to grieve. No time to do anything. Had to get this deal done. 10,000 families, 10,000 jobs. And in in my mind, that meant 10,000 families. And especially because both headquarters were in the Twin Cities, to me that felt like 10,000 neighbors who were going to be affected. So, okay, back to work right away. About six months later, still within that 18-month window, my father, who was not ill, had some surgery and as a complication of surgery, became a quadriplegic and passed away. So all this confluence of personal tragedy, professional challenges beyond anything I had encountered meant that during that period of time, I wasn't sleeping well, I'd lost 20 pounds, all this kind of stuff. And yet, we, I did what we do. We're trained to play hurt. We just keep going because that's what has to happen. There's a lot at stake. And then it was over and the deal went through and I had a little bit more time and I thought, okay, now I'll bounce back. But I didn't. And what that was a big surprise to me because, as I said, I'd done deals before and they're crazy and hectic and then you have some space and you bounce back. Only this time I didn't. So although I started juggling again, that 21st century juggler stuff started again, I was profoundly aware that something had been lost during that period of time, that although on the outside I looked like I was doing everything, I knew something had been lost, significantly lost. And what I would learn later from the work that I would ultimately do the research before the development of the mindful leadership curriculum, what I would learn from neuroscientists was that you can get to a point of such depletion that your resiliency is gone. And it's not easy to bounce back. A good friend of mine was a physician and knew me very well and said, you know what you need to do? You need to go to a spa. That would be the answer. If you go to a spa, you'll sleep, you'll eat good food, and you'll bounce back. It'll be okay. Go to the spa for a week. Okay, so you have young son. Um, I had young children at that time. The last thing I could think of doing was going home and telling them, Mom's going on vacation without you. (laughs) (laughs) As it was, my husband, my wonderful husband and my children, I had to send on vacation twice during that 18-month period without me because I could not get away. So this was not happening. But he was very insistent, and he sent me this link of the number one Zagat survey spot in the country. And one morning when I got I got this link, he had sent it in an email, and I was really feeling tired. I just clicked on the link, and it opened to this magnificent photographs of this place in Arizona. And you felt better just watching the pictures. Just looking at the pictures made you feel better. It was just gorgeous. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, it's a gorgeous spa, but I'm not going to a spa for a week. And then I saw this little blurb in the corner. They had special programs. And one was 
The Power of Mindfulness, an Intensive Retreat for Executives. And honestly, in my warped little mind at that point, I said, aha, maybe if it's intensive, it's okay to go to the spa. (laughs) And for executives. (laughs) And for executives, right. What else could you want? Anyway, um, I went home. I spoke with my husband about it. I did some research into this, too, because I was like, what is this mindfulness stuff? In the business world, nobody knew what this was. And this is the year, what, 2000? 2000. Still 2000. Okay. So you're... Uh, 2001. Very early. Mindfulness wasn't cool at no. that point. No, it wasn't even known. Ten years known. away from being cool. Yeah, yeah it wasn't even known. Um, and mindful leadership didn't exist at all. And But mindfulness was not in the business world. And I looked and I was like, well, what is this, right? I mean, I grew up here in New Jersey. I went to school at NYU. I don't hug trees. I don't chant. I'm not burning incense. What's this stuff? And so I looked and said, well, who's this John Kabat-Zinn? Because he was teaching. I was like, who is this guy? And then I felt better because I saw, oh, he's an MIT guy. Okay, he's into science. Okay, training the mind. I get that. That that makes sense to me because I actually grew up with that idea. I had a father who believed that mathematics would train your mind. So the idea that you could do things that could train innate capacities of the mind wasn't a hard leap for me to make. So I was like, okay, what's this? Let me just quickly say that if anybody's interested in John Kabat-Zinn, he's a former guest on this podcast, so you can go listen to that. Yes. All right. So ultimately, I went six days, Arizona desert, to this day, Dan, among the 10 hardest things I've ever done in my life. What was the name of the place you went to? Uh, Miraval. Okay, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. I was giving a talk, not I wasn't, I wasn't chilling. So just, just for, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> but it would be okay if you were chilly. <laughs> right. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. So uh, I remember the very first day, John, small group, there were 12 of us in the desert. Right, 12 of us. Uh, even though it was a beautiful resort, we had no time to enjoy the resort because we would go 6.30 in the morning till 9 o'clock at night practicing, engaging in dialogue. Okay, so the very first night, sitting in a circle, first time we're together, and John says, well, we're going to be sitting by clock time about 45 minutes. And I remember thinking, we're going to do what for 45? We're just going to sit here? I'll go crazy. I'm like, out. And in fact, after a day and a half, I was ready to go. And told him so. He's like, oh, man, this, no, nah, I can't do this. He was being the fabulous and, and talented and amazing teacher that he is. We talked and I stayed. And I will tell you that from that first time where I thought I won't survive five minutes to the last day when I remember going for the first early morning, 630 in the morning, we would carry our cushions out to the edge of the desert and, and sit in this kiva uh, for our morning silent practice. And I remember that last day carrying my little cushion out to the edge to have our morning. And all I could think of, all that was in my mind was, it's only an hour, it'll never be enough. <laughs> That's what happened in six days. So I was hit hard by this. So that's how I was introduced to mindfulness. That's not how mindful leadership came about, but that's how I was introduced. What was happening in your mind that was so useful for you? When I stopped, it was a lot like hitting a brick wall because I had been living a life that was going 150 miles an hour for so long that I had no idea what it was like to actually stop and inhabit this moment and actually fully be here for this moment as opposed to being on autopilot and being that juggler. Uh, And it opened up a whole 
amazing aspect of my life to me. It also started to teach me one of the big aha moments, which is why it's such a critical part of the work that I do now at the Institute, is the idea that you could notice thoughts was mind-blowing to me. Like, oh my gosh, you could actually just rest and notice thoughts arising and dissolving because that gave me a different way of being in relationship to those thoughts. So they're not owning you as much. Yeah. So you go back to General Mills. Did you tell everybody about this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, in fact, I was a closet meditator because I went back, and here was the big issue. Uh, I come back. I walked at, First, I walked into my home. My husband noticed the difference in moments after I arrived home. Like, oh, my gosh. This is like, what happened? Um and I started to have a regular daily practice, but I had no support, no support around me at all. So here I was, a corporate executive. I absolutely told no one about this. And much of that was because I didn't know how to describe this yet. I didn't know what to say about it. I wasn't sure exactly what the impact would be. It was new. And I was still curious. I still wanted to learn a lot more. And so I just set about learning, and I learned from many teachers, from many different theologies. It was important to me. I wanted to hear from a lot of folks and um, began to notice that the idea of living into our, the best of humanity actually exists lots of places, lots of theologies, lots of cultures. And uh, the idea that we can train parts of our mind in certain ways, and it has physiological changes. So I wanted to learn the neuroscience. So I was in learning and practice mode for years before I started to consider that I really had to bring this out. And it really became a had to. I considered it for a long time um, and kept saying, no, this is going to be my thing. And um, that's enough. And I started almost immediately, within a few months, seeing how it was changing the way I was not only at home, but also at work with my department in my company. Um, and then I was, then came the day, and it literally was one day when um, I decided this has had such an impact on leadership and in the training I had been doing just kind of uh, – traditional leadership development and how it began to intersect in phenomenal, powerful ways. You mean you were already involved in traditional leadership development within the corporation? Yes. Yeah, for year, for decades, uh, and not only in that company, but in past companies. Basically from, helping executives get better, rise up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and in, in people in my department, uh, as part of an office, as part of a corporate officer, I was involved in it. I was always interested in my own leadership. How do I get better at this myself? Um, and uh, and then I started to see very big changes that were happening in my own leadership and in the way I was coaching others and mentoring others. So I was at an officer's meeting one day where they had set aside an entire day to talk about innovation, gathered all the officers from all around the world together for a full day, had some consultant. We were going through all kinds of stuff, exercises, this, that, and the other thing. And finally, it got toward the end of the day. Not much progress had been made. 
And one officer who's a, a good friend um, stood up and said, look, here's the deal. It's not that we don't have bright people in this organization. We do. We have bright, creative people. But here's what happens. We get a group of people together. We want to be more creative about something. We want to approach something a different way. Somebody says something. And before the words even touch the table, eight people pounce on it. We've tried it before. There's no funding. We'll never get approval, blah, 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 all this stuff. And it dies before the seed even has a chance to, is there something here? Should we turn it this way and that way? And to me in that moment, it felt like that was all a lot of storytelling, a lot of uh, reactivity. Uh, I also had a great deal of feeling of compassion for people in that room who I knew so many of them personally had great regard for these people as individuals, knew that these are people with bright minds and good hearts, and they get crushed and overwhelmed by stuff that I knew in, from my own experience, um, a certain combination of mindfulness and leadership development would make better. So how did it go? I mean, I would want to put a fine point on this because now, meditation is in all sorts of corporations. It's not surprising when you hear that Apple and Google and Twitter and Aetna and all these other co corporations are doing mindfulness for their employees. But this was not common when you started to gingerly broach it with your colleagues. So you were, this was a risk. So how did you go about taking this risk? Yeah, it, was, it actually was a very big risk, and I knew it was a big risk. And that's why I said it really got to a point where I couldn't not do it. That's I saw so much, you know, it's a big word and, and I'm about to say suffering, but, you know, people hear that word and it can get creepy meaning to it. And what it really just felt to me like there's a lot of potential here. There's a lot of uh, angst here that doesn't need to be here. There's a lot of potential here that's not being tapped. And it just felt like I had so much caring for my colleagues that I said, all right, I'm going to I'm going to try. And I'm going to see what happens. So the way, how do I try, right? How do you do this? So I just started to literally, I would be walking the halls. I'd be in meetings with people doing my job as the deputy general counsel. And um, I'd see someone and I'd say, oh, you know, that's Tim. He's pretty open-minded about stuff. Let me just see. And I'd say, have some kind of conversation about, hey, you know, I've been exploring this kind of interesting training of the mind. It has some really big effects on leadership. And you know, Dan, the thing that surprised me was the answer I got from people was, oh, is that what's been different about you? Because <laughs> people noticed. Hmm. And that was a surprise to me. I knew it. But what I underestimated was how much other people saw it. And so what I got was yeah, I don't know what you're talking about with this mindfulness stuff, but if that's what it was, sure, I want to learn about this stuff. And so, and just, and I'm sorry to interrupt you. Because no, I just, okay. This proves a point that I say a thing all the time, which you're saying better, just in many ways. People ask, you know, what if I get really into meditation, how do I get others around me to do it? And I always say, don't talk about it because you're probably going to be very annoying and off-putting. And you did this thing, which was to lead by example. They saw in you something they wanted for themselves. And so you just modeled it. And by the time you broached it with people, it wasn't annoying. It was like, oh, okay, well, give me some of that, please. Yeah, yeah. And that is that is so, so important. You can't make someone do this. And so although 
we work with individuals and we work with organizations and teams, we always ask. If somebody says to me, hey, I've got this leadership team, we want to come on retreat with you for your five-day retreat, and we want the whole team to come, the first question I ask is, does everybody want to come? Because if it's the leader of a team and they're saying, well, no, we're making everybody come, that's a disaster. Because you know, this is hard. It's not easy. You really can't get to the kind of things that we're talking about, this kind of transformative leadership, the kind of uh, touching into your best self so that you can increase focus and clarity and creativity and compassion. You can't do that by flipping a switch or doing this for three minutes a day. Um, So if somebody's saying we want to invest in this for our whole team, I often or my uh, other instructors at the Institute will often have a phone call with everybody and say, okay, what are your questions? What do you think is going to happen here? Let me tell you, let me answer your questions about it so that they know what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. Um, but so then the first group, very brave group, right? They they went away. At General Mills. Yeah. Too. This yeah. first very first group of 13, they went away for four nights. So this was not a, hey, come listen for an afternoon. If you want to do this, you got to jump in. <laughs> um, and so we had an intensive retreat and they came back. And I was very interested in gathering feedback, you know, and I wanted my, our researchers to do it because I didn't want it to be me. Um, so I had our researchers do that. And the number one most used term from these, and every single person there was an officer or director, the number one most used term was transformative. Hmm. But here's the t- problem. They came back and they said, what's that thing you did with Janice? You know, they're, you know, people they work for, their colleagues in their departments. What's that thing you did? You were gone. And what what'd you do? Nobody could describe what it was. So all they would say was, you know, I can't even describe what it was. You just have to go do this. So go do it. You know, you next time she offers it, you go do it, too. Um, and as a result, of course, you can't send everybody away for four nights. So as a result, the great leaders do what great leaders do. When they're touched by something, they want other people to touch it, too. So within a week, I had one of the VPs from that retreat say, I want my whole division to have access to this. If people want it, I want to make it available to them, but I can't send them all away. So what else have you got? And so I took that curriculum and turned it into a weekly seven-week exploration that was open to everyone because I firmly believe that every single one of us is a leader and every single one of us has the capacity to lead with excellence. And that was the beginnings at General Mills. By the time I left to start the Institute, more than 700 employees had had full training in mindful leadership. And I met you when you were in the, the throes of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I flew out there in, I think, 2010 or nine, and did a story for yeah. ABC News about you doing this. And then I used you in the book as the example of like the least likely meditator in the least likely meditation spot. And by that point, I, I mentioned this in every speech I give that mm-hmm. my general mills, you know, the people who make hamburger helper have yeah. meditation rooms in all the buildings and yeah. their corporate campus in Minnetonka in Minnesota, which is yeah. amazing. And because of you. Um, so you left and you started the mindful, uh, the Institute for mindful Institute, leadership. Yeah. What does it do? And who, you, what's your, what's your life like now? Yeah. 
Uh, so another leap off a cliff because, again, still not in the business world when I'm starting it, but those um, five-day retreats, had word had spread outside of General Mills. So we had started to allow professionals from other organizations to come on those retreats along when we usually had those between two and four times a year. And we'd let other people, like somebody would tell a colleague at another company or whatever, and we'd let them come as well. And then the demand got so big that I started to have those same feelings of over like too much, like the Pillsbury deal, and only this time a little smarter and said, Mm -hmm. okay, I got to pick here. Something has to happen. And so I decided to start a nonprofit, the Institute for Mindful Leadership, um, and do this full time and recruited people who would apprentice with me to learn what this is. So what we do is we work, we have several open uh, registration events in a year, and they range from one full day to four weeks live online. So all of our teaching is live online. Um, and then we still do the five-day, four-night um, intensive retreat. And so that's one of our missions. And then we do customized, all of that customized for organizations and teams who want it. We work with the government. We work with nonprofits. And we are a nonprofit, and, and we're very happy to be a nonprofit that allows us to do uh, always make sure that nonprofit leaders have access to our work as well. So we always have that available. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20 percent versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier.
So if I'm out there and I'm in a corporation and I, I'm interested, because people ask me all the time, I work for this X or Y company and I'd like to introduce mindfulness, how do I go about it? Yeah. Giving you a call would be one way to go about that it. That would be great. And uh, looking at our, our website's easy. It's mindfulleaders.org. Just remember plural, mindfulleaders, and .org because we're not a company. We're a nonprofit. So my, that's the place to get information. Um, and uh, either join us individually or, or have us – and I have – all of our instructors are people who have been in what I call been in the fire. So they are presidents of international companies, they're managing director of uh, financial organizations, social workers from healthcare organizations. Um, but these are all people who themselves know both sides. They know about leadership and they know about mindfulness. When you say leadership, what do you mean? Yeah. So a leader at its core is someone who influences Right. It's about influence. If you think about who is a leader, it's someone who has influence. Okay, so if you think about us individually and just stop for a minute and think about it, every single person every day with our actions, our inactions, our words, we influence for better or worse every day. We influence our community, our families, the people around us, the work we do. So in that context, you can think of mindful leadership training as a curriculum that is about teaching ourselves to more often influence for better and less often influence for worse. So you can be a leader without a title. In fact, we have all seen that many times in our lives if we stop to think about it. We can probably think about it right now. If you work in an organization, is there someone in your department who may not have a title but is somebody who really has an influence on the department, who really has an influence. Either they're compassionate, they're creative, they're really smart, they're just the kind of open person who you want to bounce ideas off of, and they may or may not have a title. The opposite is true as well. We've seen people with titles, big titles, sometimes big titles in D.C., who have influences, but not for better. Influence for worse. So, or no influence. So it's not about leadership is really about influence. And then you say, okay, well, how do you influence for better? Well, we have a very specific way that we encourage that. So when we talk about mindful leader, someone who influences for better, we're talking about someone who has cultivated their innate capacity to strengthen what I call four fundamentals, focus, clarity, creativity, and compassion. And they do it in the service of others. So mindful leadership training is never about greed. It's not about self alone. It is always with those four fundamentals. So focus, right? Your ability, even in the world of technology and constant distractions, to sustain attention when you need to. Clarity, knowing your own filters. What is it that filters my ability to make a clear decision in the moment to answer that question, what's called for now, not react, or to know where my filters are on unconscious bias. So that's the work of really understanding what's here. And that's where noticing our thoughts helps us to start to see what pops up. Creativity, innovation. So neuroscience tells us that it's in the spaciousness in our mind that we put things together in new and novel ways. Well, for constantly doing the loop of the to-do list, there's no space. There's no place for that to happen. 
And I like to tell the story there of, of you know, you work at a, a trying to solve a problem and you, you talk to people and you really think about it. You go to sleep in the morning, you're in the shower and aha, the answer comes up and you're saying, wow, that's an easy answer. Where, you know, how come I shows up in the shower? It's not the magic of shower water, right? What happened? Your mind hasn't started the loop yet. And there was a little bit of space. And the good news is that with training, we can cultivate that quality of spaciousness through reflection. And that's why leadership reflection is an important part of what we teach. And then compassion. Compassion, as we use it, is about deep understanding. So it's not sympathy. It's not empathy. But it's deep understanding. Because when we allow ourselves that deep understanding, we also often notice that pull toward an act of kindness. And the hardest thing I've learned uh, in now all these years of teaching, more than a dozen years of teaching that mindful leadership, is that those folks with those bright minds and good hearts, self-compassion is hardest. Self-compassion. Self-compassion yeah. is hardest. So let me ask you a bunch. Of, let's get down to brass tacks and talk some practical stuff here. Go for it. So, Sel, let's just start where you ended. Self-compassion. Mm-hmm. If I have compassion for myself, am I not going to go soft and just give myself a break and not have high standards? No. Oh. Self-compassion is about finding those ways of nourishing yourself so that you can do your best work. Um, So that deep understanding of yourself could be something as simple as, take an example, as simple as noticing, because I've been paying attention to my body, that I feel exhausted. I wake up exhausted. I'm I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted all day long. And I start to understand that that's here, that I feel that in my body. So self-compassion, that pull toward an act of kindness, can be something as simple as I'm going to go to sleep a half an hour early every night this week. I'm just going to do it. It can be something as small and simple as that. doesn't mean you don't try to ace the project you're working on or whatever. It makes you more likely to ace the project, in fact, because when you're exhausted, you can't access your best self. So uh, what about compassion for other people? I mean, we work in competitive environments. If I'm walking around worrying about what the people over at NBC might feel about me scooping them, am I going to be a fan? Not, not that I've Done, done that recently, but but you know, uh, am I going to be effective in my job? I'm in a competitive environment, right? So, again, if we think about it as deep understanding, it's really more about: Am I treating people with equanimity? Am I treating people with respect? Uh, am I listening open heartedly to people? It's not about giving away a competitive advantage. In any way, that's that doesn't enter into it. Where it might show up is if the way you got that scoop is that you stole something for it or you bribed someone for it or you did something that was not respectful, was not in alignment with your principles and and was not ethical. Many of us and I actually I'm not speaking about my I am genuinely not speaking about my own situation right now because I have a very I am lucky enough to have a great relationship with my current employers. Yeah. Um, but many of us have in the past, will in the future or are now working for malignant human beings. And um, what what how does one deal with that situation mindfully? Yeah. I had that situation and I can give you an example and it's not that this is the solution for everyone, but I can tell you just an example that might give folks some ideas. So I'm always teaching that we can't change people around us. What we can change is our relationship 
to what is here. And uh, as an example, I had someone that I had to work with in one of the jobs I had who was um, such a toxic person that if I was sitting at my desk and their name showed up on the caller ID, I'd get chest pains. <laughs> it was that kind of like, oh, they were just difficult. I didn't think they were nice in any way. And it wasn't even like, oh, I want people to be nice to me. It was they were harsh. They were toxic to the department. They were just not good. They weren't good for the business. Nothing about them. But they were there. And so one day when I noticed that chest tightening and uh, this person was asking for a meeting and they happened to be in another building. So I had a long, a decent walk, eight minute walk, say, to get there. Normally, what would happen is the whole way there, here comes my story, you know, my full-length feature film in my head. Why is she so difficult? This is going to be miserable. I'm never going to be able to get her to where we really need to go with this. This meeting is just going to be contentious, and she's going to be blah, blah, blah. You know, by the time I arrived at the doorway, can you imagine how I was, right, defended, tight? There was virtually no chance that anything positive could come from that just because I arrived that way. So one day I decided to take my practice into that situation in a very simple way. And so next time this happened or this phone call happened, I said, okay, I'm going to try something differently. And I know you're familiar with kindness practice. Um, some people call it loving kindness practice. But what it really simply is, is just thinking of phrases that would be things that everyone wants, like feeling healthy, or feeling happy, or feeling strong, or being at ease, you know, kind of the basic humanity shared goals, you know, what does each individual want. So what I did in that entire walk was with every step, I would say one of those things. May she be happy? May she be healthy? May she live at ease. I would go every step that way. I had no idea what would happen from this, but I thought, try it, experiment. I'm a big fan of experimenting. I arrived there, and I was amazed at this sense of calm and openness. Sat down. We had a meeting. I'm walking out of the meeting, and at the doorway, she stopped me and said, Hey, Janice, that was a really great meeting. I did not, said nothing to her about what happened. There was nothing changed except how I arrived there. So sometimes we can look at, is there a way to meet what's difficult in our lives with a little more openness, a little more ease for ourselves? And that can begin to make things. Did we become best friends? No. But it was a different relationship. And so when we work for people who are toxic, what we can look at is, is there some way that first I can meet this in a way that's not adding to the difficulty? And then from that, is there some way that I can make it a little better, a small step? But why is it on us? We're not the toxic ones. Because you can't change the people around you. You can only change how you meet what's here. And if we decide that we're going to change the whole world to be like we want it to be, that is a futile effort, and that's really going to just deplete us, in my experience. Speaking of toxicity, do you think 
boosting the mindfulness quotient in corporate life could have a positive impact on what what we're now learning is a scourge of sexual harassment? I think it can help with making women feel empowered to uh, take some small steps themselves to um, some of what holds women back is a very real lashback. Um, and some of what holds women back is uh, a fear that we feed in our heads. And this isn't just about women, but oftentimes one of the great gifts of being on this mindful leadership journey was noticing the times when we are telling ourselves stories and how those stories keep us from our best lives and our best leadership. Like imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, but more than sometimes in the in an organization, we start telling ourselves, like, let's take an example. One of the things we work with is calendars because people feel like they have no time. And we actually do a reflection on calendars. And one of the things that people start to notice is, well, why am I going to that meeting? There are five people from my department going to that meeting. Why am I going there? And then to answer that question, well, why are you going there? So we start to look at, oh, because I've told myself this, that, well, people will think I'm not interested if I don't go. Or if I don't go, there's going to have an impact on my career. Or so-and-so is going to be talking about us. That's my favorite one. You know, so-and-so is going to be talking about us. The reality is nobody's talking about you. You know, we think people talk about us, but we don't talk about other people and they're not talking about us. So many times we have this fear that drives us to do things in the business world that when we can stop and again have that different relationship to the stories that are coming up in our mind, say, what I suggest people do when they're in that practice of working with their thoughts is just hold it Gently hold thoughts that arise simply as, and I don't mean hold on to them, but notice them with um, the, enough spaciousness to say they may or may not be true. You don't have to dismiss them or push them away or anything else, just that much. They may or may not be true. And what if I can notice it in that way and then ask myself that question, what's called for in this moment when that thought arises? But do you think that having more people with some meditation under their belt might in any way cut down on uh, sexual harassment? People more mindfully um, surfing their urges as opposed to just acting them out? Well, in general, I think we can have less reactivity, but there's so much that goes into why people feel free to engage in sexual harassment that I think it's a lot to put on mindfulness as, well, that's going to cure it. Um, I think just like any behavior, whether it's disrespect or harassment or any number of ills that we could talk about, um, it will be helpful, but not the panacea. Yeah. So I certainly wouldn't say it's going to take it out of the workplace if everyone meditates. Yeah, I'm, I, I think I think it's one one way to you know stiffer penalties. Um, making it completely unacceptable, uh, having more women in leadership roles. There are lots of yes. things that need to be done. You mentioned calendar. Because, so I'm intrigued by that because I, I would say the biggest problem in my life is that I am too busy. I often describe it as drowning in chocolate, and I love everything I'm doing, so it's all chocolate. 
but I'm still drowning. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on busyness. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that when I go when I go back to when I was first developing my own practice and bringing it into leadership and looking at that, one of the practices that I started to look at was my calendar. And every morning when I came in, and I you know turn my computer on and I'd start to look through what was on my agenda for that day, what was what was coming up in that day, I take a few moments and try to look at each thing as if I had never seen it before and pay attention to what was arising in my mind, the thoughts, and also in my body. And it was a very telling exercise to do every day. So you might want to try it out just once a day in the morning, taking a look, pay attention. It takes three or four minutes. And then I would leave myself every day with a question. Is there one place today where I can make a conscious choice that is, and you can fill in the blank for whatever is meaningful for you, that is more personally nourishing, that is more efficient, that is less wasteful, you know, you can fill in that blank for whatever is meaningful for you at that time that is not going to burn me out that is going to allow me to connect more deeply with my family you know fill in the blank for yourself and that's a wonderful practice to start with what people often discover is that the most important things truly the most important things are not on our calendars and so that can lead to an intention to put them on their calendars, to actually make space on their calendars for whatever is most important in your life. So it is a combination of reflecting on what's important, of looking more critically at it. I know for me, I had a wonderful uh, assistant for many years uh, when I was a VP. And uh, in the interest of being of service and of doing a good job, I'd accept or she would accept on my behalf everything. And I realized at one point that there were, I don't remember the number now, but at the time there probably were 55,000 employees. And I realized that 54,999 had the right to put time on my calendar and only one person didn't, and that was me. And that was one of the aha moments uh, in terms of how do I do this more effectively? How do I do this more efficiently so that I can have that little space? Um, And speaking of space... Um, one of the things that's related to calendaring and something that I noticed in the early years of my own mindful leadership journey was that even when we finish things, and maybe, Dan, you, you relate to this as well, we finish things, people tell us, gee, that was great, you know, did good job on that, that, that project went well, that interview went well, that class did well under your guidance. We do a lot of work with teachers as well. And yet, we feel, yeah, it was it was good, but there's this kind of nagging sense, or there was for me, um, that, yeah, but still not my best. Still something could have been, and again, fill in the blank, could have been more creative, could have been more compassionate, could have been more forward thinking, could have been more whatever, fill in the blank. And I started to pay attention to that nagging feeling of, yeah, but not, not really my best, not really what I thought I could do. And in those early years of teaching mindful leadership to the other execs and 
people at every level at General Mills, I started to hear the same thing from the officers, from the directors, that nagging sense. So I turned it into a reflection for myself and for them. All right, what's missing? What do you need to be the absolute best that you think you can be? What's missing? What do you need? Now, in normal situations, and you ask leaders or professionals, what do you need? I need a bigger budget. I need more people. I need better direction. You know, fill in the bank again. But that's what you'd hear. I didn't hear any of that from the people who are on this mindful leadership journey. And it's not what came up for me. What I heard over and over again and what came up for me was a really simple thing. What do I need? I just need a little space. I just need space. And that, in fact, was the um, inspiration for the book, Finding the Space to Lead. It's that space that we cultivate when we start to do things like the calendar exercise, like we do reflections on inspiration, on leadership principles, we start to learn more about ourselves, what's important, how to, how to lead in a way that is more often for better and less for worse, whether that's in our family, our community, or in our, our companies. So what does that mean practically? Like, I've started to experiment recently with like saying no nicely to people. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know what, I'm a little overloaded right now. I can't do that. Is that what you're talking about in terms of space? And then what do you do with that space? I I know what I do with it, but what do you recommend? Yeah. Okay. So that's exactly, that's a perfect example. Um, So that's one of the examples. Some of it is about letting go of our ego because our ego sucks a lot of time out of our days when we start to look at, and it's not like ego is a bad thing, but sometimes we're feeding our ego with things that really aren't about what's important to us. And that's why it needs to be both things. Like what's really important to you professionally? What's really important to you personally? And then where are we sucking time out of the day that really doesn't feed those things that are about that? It's also can be something as simple as putting a space into every um, week, into every day. And one group that I worked with, which was a whole department, and they wanted to improve their innovation. And we put uh, in place for everyone a space, and we called it free parking, like the Monopoly game. And the reason we called it free parking, if you're a Monopoly fan or for those who aren't, it's a corner piece. And when you play Monopoly, it's a place where you get to take a breath. Right, because nobody's going to take money from you there. Nobody's, going to, and it's also the place the way my family always played, where you'd put all the fine money. So if you actually landed there, you got new riches, you got surprise, something that helped you. So we called these one-hour times during each week free parking spaces, and they were sacrosanct. Nobody could touch that one hour on you. So, you know, you couldn't give it away. Nobody can intrude on it. You know, that was it, that one hour in the work week. And then to your question, Dan, was a great question. Well, what do you do with it? Well, all during the week, we gave people a free parking little notepad stick by their computer. And during the week, we all have these things where you say, we see a headline and say, geez, I'd like to know more about that. So you, you draw it down. Or I really want to run this past so-and-so. I, I wish I had time to make a call. Or I wish I had time to set up coffee with somebody or whatever it is. And you'd make a list. So when you come to that hour, you open up your book and say, oh, okay, which of these things? Yeah, this is all the stuff I didn't get to all week. It started to make an enormous difference mm. in people's quality of their lives 
and their ability to stretch to the stuff that's interesting to them, that's nourishing to them, and that really moved the dial in ways that were personally important to people. I have one last question, then I want to get to this prop you brought. Um, This last question you may think is a little obnoxious, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So there's a criticism of what you do, which I, just for the record, am a supporter of, not the criticism of what you do, although I think the criticism has merit. The criticism is that introducing mindfulness into corporations is, some believe, questionable. Now, for example, you work for General Mills. There are a lot of people who criticize General Mills, the nutritional quality and and content of the products, et cetera, et cetera. So in the end, what are we doing? Who are we helping by bringing this to people who are executives who may be, you know, slashing our benefits or um, selling us stuff that's not good for us or or maybe they're introducing mindfulness into the corporation to make more pliant employees or some of the criticism that we've heard. So how do you respond to this? Yeah, it's a good question. And And I don't think it's an unfair question. I think it's a question that should be asked. I go back to a couple of things. I guess there's two things I'd answer. The first thing I would say is corporations are not corporations. Corporations are groups of individuals. And while that sounds simplistic, it's not. It's important to remember that the people are the ones who make choices. So it's not General Mills making a choice. It's an individual. It's a group of individuals who are making choices. And so in my experience, when you can have a sense, which I certainly had at General Mills, that, and with most of the organizations that I work with, and I will tell you that there are some that I will not work with, that the Institute has said no to. Um, and I can get into that, that not by name, but I can tell you why if we have time. But for the ones where we're happy to work with people, these are people who are some of our best and brightest. They're well-educated. Most of these people are people, as I said, bright minds and good hearts. They get overwhelmed with pressures and stress, and they become reactive when they should be responsive. And not should be, but it would be better for them to be responsive. And so when we're able to start teaching people how to reach their best selves, to touch their principles, which is why our stuff isn't about teaching somebody to meditate for 10 minutes with their breath. Our curriculum gets to what are your principles? What are your ethics? Where does it show up? What do you do when there's dissonance between what you're asked to do and what you now know are your core principles? That's all a part of our curriculum. And what we aim for and hope for and encourage people to look at is where are the win-win-win choices? You need to keep the organization healthy. Yep, because you want people to have jobs. But where's the win-win-win? Where's the choice that's good for the organization, good for its employees, and good for the big picture? good for the community. And I have seen again and again and again that when given the ability to not feel overwhelmed and reactive, that they want to find those choices too. And when we give them the chances to be their best self, it's what I believe, Dan, is the best hope for us meeting the problems is to take these people who are our best and brightest and who I believe most of them have good hearts and we help them meet what is here in a different way and find those win-win-wins. I think a good place to close would be on this prop that you brought me, which is uh, nobody can see this, but I can see it, and it's a word cloud. So tell me me about this. One of the 
earliest exercises we do in the Institute's curriculum is a reflection on leadership excellence. And to do this, we first teach people that although we've been well-trained to use our minds for analysis, which is an important part of leadership, we have to know how to analyze, we also need to cultivate and develop our mind's capacity for reflection. Because reflection is that spaciousness, that place where we can be more creative, more innovative, and also where we touch our own wisdom. And everyone has this abundance of wisdom that we need to tap into more. It's that connection that we all have um, as well. So we do this reflection, and I guide this reflection by inviting people to call to mind uh, someone who has had an influence on their lives that really touched them in some way. So someone that, as we said, leadership is about influence. So someone has influenced their lives, either at work, at school, in the community, doesn't matter where, it could be in your family. But somebody would say that was a great leader because that person knew how to influence for better. And we have them bring that person to mind, really bring that to mind, and then ask just one reflection question. Why? Out of everyone who's touched your life, why did that person come to mind? What is it about him or her? And when we do this reflection, the words that arise, we then ask people to say, what are the words or phrases that arise? And so that tag cloud that you have in front of you is a compilation. I'll, I'll read some of the words. Listener and supportive are right in the center. Respectful, genuine, humble, visionary, compassion patient, connected. Those are the biggest words. Yes. And it does not matter whether you do that reflection. In our experience, we have done this reflection. I've done it. I'll just speak about my own experience here. I've taught that reflection at the World Economic Forum. I've taught it in China, Australia, all over North and South America. does not matter where I do it. It doesn't matter what the culture is, doesn't matter what the profession is, doesn't matter what level of employee. These same words come up. Mm-hmm. And never have I had anybody say, met the quarterly earnings <laughs> or worked well with the board or any of those things, any of those kinds of things. And yet I can remember decades of training leaders and, and evaluating professionals on their leadership qualities. And we would not be including virtually any of those words on it. And so this is a big aha for people, especially experienced leaders at that point, to say, ah, so this is what we're talking about when people are touched. And why is it important for people to be touched? Because when you're in the trenches, when you're doing something that's difficult or stressful or time sensitive, you want people to feel like they're all in and that they're connected to you and that you're going to have their backs and that you're going to be there for them, that you're not just commanding control. You're not leading by division. You're not leading by bullying. You're not leading in those ways that are not excellent, are not mindful. And you're going to get the best out of people, for yeah. sure. I mean, it's funny, when I think about, <clears throat> I've never worked for him, but when I think about who would come to mind for me as a great leader would be m- actually my younger brother, Matthew C. Harris, um, who doesn't listen to this podcast, so I can say nice things about him, because normally <laughs> I tease him. Uh, but yeah, these words are all would be what I would describe my brother as being. Um, before we go, let's do uh, what I call the plug zone. Uh, let's just plug everything. Give us – I know you've mentioned it, but let's just go back on the website, the name of the book, any where you are on social media, anything 
you'd like to get out there. Great. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so mindfulleaders.org is where you can find information. Uh, we are happy to work individually with organizations. We work with government and nonprofit and for-profit. Um, we work with teams and whole organizations. And then we also have, for the folks who want to do it on their own or for the folks who want to check us out before they bring us to um, their organization, we offer basically three things. A one-day, which, which is called Finding the Space to Lead, uh, a four-week live, which is so once a week um, for 90 minutes, but it's live in real time with an instructor, and uh, and then our four-night, uh, five-day, four-night um, retreat, which is obviously residential and, and our most intensive uh, training, and that's usually a, a wonderful gathering of international leaders. And so you can check us out on the website, um, social media, where all those regular places, Facebook and um, LinkedIn and uh, all the rest. Uh, so I'd encourage people to come. And the book is Finding the Space to Lead. It's a practical guide to mindful leadership. And so along with the book comes a whole host of free meditations and leadership reflections um, right on. You can look at findingthespacetolead.com. That's a dot com. Uh, and uh, we have it in English and Spanish meditations. And Twitter? Yeah, we're on Twitter as well. Yeah. What is it? Uh, it's actually my name, Janice Martirano, is uh, our Twitter. Uh, but uh, Institute for Mindful Leadership is also there. Awesome. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Great job. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge 
and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.